Hey everyone, welcome to episode 70 of Ale of a Time. This week, Dave and I are hanging out with, with one of the probably most respected uh, writers and authors in the, the world of beer, Stan Hieronymus. We were hanging out at the Crafty Squire here in Melbourne, the James Squire Brew Pub, and spent a little bit of time chatting about uh, homebrew. Uh, Stan was over here for the Australian National Homebrewers Conference, so he was speaking at that. Uh, we also just kind of touched on the trends of American beer and, and the changes happening in American beer, and he gave us some insight into to all of those things that are going on. Um, for those that don't know who uh, Stan is or aren't familiar with his work, um, he's written four books, uh, Brewing with Wheat, Brew Like a Monk, For the Love of Hops, and Brewing Local. So if there's anyone to, to chat homebrew with, uh, he's definitely someone that you, you could do it all day. Unfortunately, we were didn't have as much time as we would have liked, but uh, hopefully we covered covered enough to, to wet your whistle into his work and um, if you need more wisdom yeah there's there's literally four books full of it so uh yeah i highly recommend checking them out um as i say on the podcast i've read a couple of them and um yeah i, I really enjoyed them and his uh blog as well was really interesting so uh yeah i hope you enjoy the show and uh, we'll be back next week with uh an equally esteemed guest but we won't quite say who that is just yet uh, anyway, um, find us on the internet. Uh, there's no closeout to this, so you find us on the internet, um, alibatime.com. Rate us on iTunes. You know all that stuff. Cheers. How is there it now? we go. Right. Wonderful. Well, welcome Great. to the Crafty Squire. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, I think my T-shirt shrunk when I put it on. Really? Out of the wash. But otherwise, Maybe he's getting huge pecs. Maybe that's what it is. I'm not getting huge pecs. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Um, let's welcome our guest before we get into huge pecs. Okay. Um, Stan Hieronymus, all the way from the States. How's it going, Stan? Uh, very good. We are enjoying the heck out of Australia. Now, people, I think uh, most of our listeners would probably recognize the name at least, um, but you're a, a beer writer, author... Uh, communicator, whatever. Well, how would you describe yourself? Um, as a uh, journalist, um, gone beer heavy. And yeah, we thought we'd get Stan on to, to chat. I guess we've well, been over here for the Australian National Homebrew Conference. Yes, a, a really wonderful event. Nicely organized. You can see how that begins to move the culture forward and recognizes the importance of education. We've talked about homebrew on the show before, um, a couple of years ago when we, we spoke to a few people there and we were kind of wondering the lack of homebrew interaction between, I guess, homebrew and professional brew in Australia, whereas in the States it seems to be like part and parcel where, you know, um, I guess with Sierra Nevada, way back in the day, they started from homebrew and that's just kind of driven the culture. Um, have you noticed any differences between the two? Well, it, it, an interesting part was there were more commercial brewers at this event than I think were there in the past. I don't know for sure. You had them presenting, you had them pouring their beer, and you begin to see that interaction. Um, in the United States, they have grown together. Uh, if, if we look back, oh, maybe a dozen years ago in the U.S., uh, in, in terms of the organization, the homebrewers organization, uh, membership was going down. I, I think it drifted and then, of course, this will cause people in Australia to be envious when I say that it drifted below 10,000. 
uh, but now it's probably pushing 50,000. And much of this has taken place because commercial brewers host events uh, for home brewers and get them to sign up for the organization. A lot of people are brewing at home and don't get involved with the organization, although it's only, I, I forget what, I mean, I'm a member of the American Home Brewers Association. I pay dues like everybody else, and I, I generally do it for a two-year period. So it's maybe about $80 for two years, tops. Um, but it's, it's not easy to get people because we, we likely have, well, I say there are 40 or 50,000 members in the organization. Prob the estimate is uh, a million people in the United States uh, brew beer at home, and they add more than a billion dollars to the economy. Wow. Wow. And home brewing was illegal up until fairly recently in the States. Um, nationally, it was 1978. Uh, but people were home brewing then. Uh, quite obviously, Sierra Nevada opens uh, in uh, 1980, uh, but they were doing test batches in 1979. And Ken Grossman was uh, had a homebrew shop before 1978. In some states, it's only the, the last two states in the country at a state level only legalized home brewing in the last three years. Which is crazy, but... Well, we, we, we had prohibition, and that was a major factor. And at the end of prohibition, somebody wrote the law, and they, they legalized home winemaking again, and they forgot to put beer in there. They literally forgot, and, and nobody paid much attention. I would get the feeling that kind of thing would happen more commonly than we probably think. It's the kind of thing where they go back and look at the law and go, oh, hang on, yeah. this is still probably illegal technically, but yeah. Um, and so you're obviously a home brewer. So how long have you been home brewing for? Um, well, we, we don't make beer at home as often in the past. Part of it, reasons for travel. Um, I tend to micromanage my fermentation. So if I'm not there for the whole time, I'm not very happy. Um, and then additional, uh, 20 years ago, I probably brewed IPA more than anything. Now there are so many excellent IPAs that I'm not interested in doing that. No, no, right now, nobody's making a, a low-alcohol uh, saison, so that's the sort of thing I'm kind of interested in making. Uh, I was interested in making a nice unfiltered Hellas. Then we moved to St. Louis, and a brewery that's two and a half miles from our house makes one of the best Hellas in the world. So why would I mess around with that? Give them a plug. What are they, what are they called? Uh, Urban Chestnut Brewing. Awesome. Uh, and what do you like about the, I guess, the low ABV or the, the Hallis or the Saison? What's, what, what's the appeal there for you? Uh, the appeal is I, um, I don't get bleep faced as fast. You can swear, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. you can do it. That's fine, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that it's important, and I was buying beers just this um, afternoon before I came here, and yeah, I picked up, you know, uh, half a dozen low ABV, a Blinder Weiss, a Goza, and a, a Session IPA, and they're all local um, and cans, and I was I was really happy. So it's um, you know times have changed, and I guess in that regard, where people are making tastier beers locally. And that um, is the reason that I stopped home brewing is because I had all this beer in my house. <laughs> and I, I mean, if it was a three and a half percent saison, I'd be much more inclined to get through it than like an eight percent brown ale or something like that. So um, I think it makes sense. It, it's hard to make a four percent saison. Uh, because you're going to get a really highly attenuated beer, and it tends to thin out the body and, and keeping it where you're not. And it not, tends like to uh, nice expose pulpit. any flaws as well. Yeah. Yes. It's um, 
American brewers have kind of taken up the, the mantle of uh, farmhouse brewing and, and saison brewing and uh, exploring wild bacteria and that kind of a thing. Is that, I guess, exciting living over there and seeing that happening? Uh, when the when the beers taste good, it is. Um, you know, we there's a, uh, more people need to throw away their experiments when they fail uh, because they are still serving failed experiments from time to time. Fermentation that's gone somewhat crazy, particularly when they are when they want to make them wild and and they're uh, factoring in bacteria. Um, the, the, they aren't all great at this point, but there are a lot of terrific ones. Now, I've been reading your, your most recent book, um, Brew, Lo- Brew like, a lo- like a Local? Well, I can't remember. Oh, what it's like it. a, uh, Brewing it? Local. Brewing Local, local sorry. Right. I've literally was reading it. Titles yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was interesting because <laughs> I've also been watching uh, Chef's Table on Netflix, and there's so, many cro- so much crossover there between what, what you're exploring in the book, um, and pretty much every chef in the second season says, I was struggling with, with my sort of place in, in the world as, as a chef until, I, until someone said to me, make something that's true to you and, and local to you. Um, and then I sort of picked up your book and it was the same, same thing. And I don't know if that's really happening here in Australia so much. People are still getting their head around styles. Um, on the homebrew level, did you see any of that sort of coming through when you were, when you were at the conference? Um. Uh, not really, not the beers I had at the conference. So, um, a few days ago, we were up in Uluru, and we're walking around there, and I'm looking at these wildflowers, and every time we walk by one, I want to grab it and smell it and That's see real what it's brewer. like. That's a real homebrewer. That's right. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and you realize that you know what you have here is entirely different um, and interesting thing to explore. M- most of these, and the tricky thing is, uh, and, and Jim Cook at, at Boston Beer uh, der- deserves credit for this line, is the idea you aren't trying to brew a pet rock. So if, if you make uh, a mushroom beer, for instance, or a beer with basil, um, you don't want it to taste 100% of the mushrooms or the basil. You're just looking for another way to create nuance. And in fact, a, a base of like what we'll call a farmhouse beer or a saison or whatever, those are really excellent starting places and and that's one way to get to where you have a four or five or or not much above five percent beer so you've got that nice flavor and it it just adds something else to it and then you know that it's kind of cool this was growing in my yard it's i guess uh, in within cooking you're seeing a lot of chefs here starting to explore it but even even that you know like pepper berries have popped up in beers i think once or twice um what, what advice would you give to someone that wants to, I guess, brew locally and in Australia? There's probably not a lot of resources for, for finding that. How would, what's the best approach? Well, I, I'd say, first of all, th- think about all parts of the plant. You know, what you can get, for instance, from the seeds. You can take the seeds and you can toast them. And now you've got something that adds a little bit of a coffee flavor. If you toast it less, it adds more of a chocolate flavor. Um, consider using the roots the same way. Every, everything, take that ingredient, not just using it raw, be willing to turn around and toast it and turn it into something else. But, but if you're grabbing, uh, for instance, you have lavender plants, yes? So you can take lavender. Well, a lavender plant is really easy to overuse because we associate lavender with soap so much that, that, it, that if you basically dry lavender your beer, uh, then it's going to smell like soap early on. 
but at least some brewers I know in the U.S. have taken lavender and boil it, say, 15 or 20 minutes, and it adds this really nice spicy cinnamon aspect to it. So taking those ingredients, um, traditionally uh, in Randy Mosher's books, I, which you surely get here, uh, are terrific resources. And he likes the idea of making a tea. I think you need to go beyond that and recognize what uh, those particular ingredients, how they're going to interact with yeast and change in the process. We're learning that with hops now. So it's what's called biotransformations. Um, lavender, for instance, has uh, geranial, linalool, citronelle, nerol. These are all compounds that also exist in hops. So I remember reading um, a while ago about curry and the ingredients that you find in an Indian curry or even a, a um, Thai curry, the, the basil or the Thai basil or the cardamom, they have similar compounds to hops as well. And Exactly. You know, it's kind of a, for me it was kind of like, I guess it's a big part of why they match, you know, as a food yeah, combination. Sure. It's not so much spicy and bitter, but there's actually flavours along the way. I guess what you're talking about there, um, it's almost like building a curry. You're not, you don't want to make it taste all of one thing. You want it to have a nuance of, of bits and pieces. Yeah, and, and that's why some of the people who are looking at these uh, ingredients that we call non-traditional, although people have used them forever, um, the, the people really successful at that are excellent cooks as well. Like composing a flavor is universal no matter how you're applying it, whether it's in a beer or cooking a dish. So that sort of qualities will translate, I think. Is this your first time in Australia? Uh, yes, it is. All right. Uh, I'm not going to ask you what Australian beers you've enjoyed, um, <laughs> but what have you enjoyed about visiting? Have you, you found anything interesting or exciting? Uh, beer or not beer is fine. Um, well, first of all, I had a great time at, at the Homebrewers Conference. Um, and that, the same thing I would say about the people I met there, I would say about um, all the time when we had in Australia is how friendly people are. It, you know, it's really nice. It, and I like the fact that they speak English, um, <laughs> so that makes of, it much yeah. easier. I occasionally have trouble, uh, but, but but that's my Midwest accent, not not a fault of theirs. Dora, I'm from New Zealand, and they can never understand me either, even though I've been here a decade. <laughs> or when I listen to American radio, and then an Australian person enters the fold, I'm like, what's that awful sound? <laughs> So uh, uh, but Daria's noticed on the TV here that, that all of these uh, old American uh, TV shows we watch, everybody has a really tinny voice. We're going, do you think that this is what Americans sound like? <laughs> um, so, uh, what we've had for food has been excellent. I mean, it, it, it's, it started particularly um, the first night of the, of the conference um, was a... Uh, a pairing, so each course was paired with a different homebrew. Was the, that the official dinner events? Well, there's uh, there are two really nice oh, dinner right. events. Thursday and then Friday is the awards, and that was also um, a paired event. But there were about three courses. Thursday there were like five courses. <laughs> I think that was the corresponding event that I went to two years ago, um, and it was magnificent. It was so good, and that's um, it really goes back to one of the first things we spoke about where I don't think in Australia at least that the homebrewing um, community and the regular craft beer community have crossed over that much. Because uh, normally if we go to any event, 
we can pick out faces that we've seen before and recognize a few people. But I went to this dinner and I didn't know anybody there. Uh, but just great community uh, feel and really well thought out pairings and that sort of stuff. It was really good. Was it, um, in terms of the event, how, how did it differ from the American homebrew conferences uh, in terms of set up and vibe? Attendance, and yeah. Attendance and <laughs> well, I think the attendance was about less than one-tenth. So that's, that's a, but, but the American conferences, I, I think back to 10 years ago, I don't think there were a thousand people there. And you, I think there was one presentation at a time. And now, because our conference has blown up so much, uh, there are five presentations at a time. So this, this conference was not much different than uh, maybe, I, I think, 10 years ago. That was an off year in Florida because it's hard. You, you put something in a corner of the country, uh, it's harder to get to. So that's probably not the best example. But it, it was comparable to maybe 12 years ago in the United States. But in terms of uh, the percentage of brewers who are really up to date with what's going on technical wise, uh, it was very, very impressive. And I'm also amazed by how many people have automated home brewing systems, you know, whether it's a Pico system or the, what is it, Grainfather, I think? Uh, Grainfather, yeah. And there, um, that's, that's real. I mean, I, I may put it in a got cooler, uh, batch sparge guy. I'm about as simple as it gets, and it was very important. Well, that, it's kind of interesting because one of the a couple of contributions that Australian homebrews had to the world is um, you know, popularizing brew in a bag was a big one here. Yes, and and as it's grown amazingly in the United States, and and if 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 so many people hadn't already figured out batch sparging, it would have been even bigger. But for uh, new home brewers, it's like, it makes their lives so much easier. You can do it on your kitchen stove, and it's, it's, it's a great contribution. That's how I used to brew in my one-bedroom apartment, and uh, yeah, it was great. It's one pot in a bag and <laughs> ferment it. It was awesome. Um, the other one is uh, no, the no-chill, uh, you know, putting into a cube and, and no-chilling your beer, uh, which is still controversial, um, but... And that's you know huge in Australia. I don't know if it has taken off in the states so much though. Um, uh, not so much, and I, I'm still a skeptic. I feel like you're biting your tongue. Feel yeah. free to. I know. <laughs> I, 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 I'm just not sure. I I am. Um, I, I I don't think that you control your yeast ever. So the, the most important thing about fermentation is creating an environment there, that your yeast want to work in. And I'm, I'm not sure that's the environment that's best for your yeast. I used to use no-chill uh, sometimes. And I think the, the hop utilization was the big one for me. I, I just noticed the uh, probably a lot more bitter than I ever planned. And yeah, um, it is an interesting one reading through the online debates and the back and forth of people passionately for and against. So you've been involved with beer for since 1983, I think I read, is that? Realistically, I've been involved with beer since uh, 1965 or 66 when I began drinking, drinking beer. <laughs> um, and, and certainly the mid-70s, so um, I, 
I worked in Peoria, Illinois, where they, there was uh, a Pabst Brewery at the time. So I began working there in, I think, 1973, um, working as a sports writer in a newspaper. And so that was a night shift. And when we would get off at 11 or 12, we would go to a bar that adjoined the Pabst Brewery, and we would drink what we referred to as green beer. You were getting incredibly fresh beer. Even though it was an adjunct lager, you know, just at that freshness of the brewery, you go, this is something different and something enjoyable. In terms of writing about beer, I didn't start writing about beer until uh, 1993. 1993. Did you go from sports journalism into beer journalism? Um, well, not, not during... I, I, I moved from sports to other aspects of the newspaper, so running a copy desk and, and then running the copy desk and uh, photography and, and other parts. So that was my job. Uh, in the beginning of 1992, that's when my wife, Daria, who's sitting right to my side, and, and you two can attest how pretty she is. <laughs> Absolutely. Of course. Um, and, and we quit our regular newspaper jobs because we wanted to see more of the United States and do freelance writing at that point. Um, is that how it, you guys met? Uh, we, we met in 1986 when I hired her to work for the copy <laughs> desk at the newspaper. Um, but so she was the first one to write stories about beer. Um, and I, I would drive the car and go around with her. And she was doing a story on uh, an event called Beer Camp at the Oldenburg Brewery in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky. And people would just show up, beer enthusiasts, and you would learn about beer there. They'd have people come in and lecture. Uh, they'd bring in a, vari- a wide range of beers that people couldn't get. And she went to write this story, and the publication she was writing for didn't publish it immediately. And what we countered on as freelancers was you sold that story once, and then you would sell it again and again and again. So she suggested to me, why don't I write it up? I had not taken a note or anything. Just write up your experience, and she would do all the work of of mailing it off to newspapers and see who would buy it. Like 10 newspapers bought it. A little light went on, we're going... People seem to be interested in this craft beer thing. <laughs> what did that look like? What did beer camp look like in terms of styles back then? Um, very, it was more imported beer than American beer. Um, you know, if we look back over time, a lot of American beer was probably not that well handled and a little bit stale. Uh, you know, not super fresh. Um, that, you know, they went to a lot of work. It was, you know, what was available was... Uh, But, you know, by then we did have, uh, oh, we were still in the hundreds in terms of new breweries in the United States as as opposed to now where there are 5,000. You know, we we have more breweries open every year than opened in the first 10 years after Sierra Nevada started. Which is remarkable, and and it's... Starting to slow, uh, show signs of, of slowing down, you know, we're seeing news from Sierra Nevada and, and Dogfish Head and Stone of the sort of plateauing sales and things like that. Uh, you're seeing them slow down. You are not seeing uh, the number of breweries opening slow down. And, and part of that, uh, you know, what's happening in Sierra Nevada will be back up again next year. Uh, but what's happening is that the breweries that sold 500 barrels are now 
they're, they're going to be up 20% this year. They'll sell 600 barrels. We have this moving towards people appreciating getting a fresh local product. Not a product that's going to stand up for two months on a shelf somewhere. Uh, you know, Sierra Nevada's, n nobody does it better than them, but uh, lots of people do it almost as well. So we, we've got a lot of people making great beer in the United States, but it still doesn't have that home field advantage. I'm a pretty keen listener, sorry, Luke, a pretty keen listener of the Good Beer Hunting podcast. And whenever there's a brewery being profiled and talked about, the conversation inevitably goes to how are you managing to keep up with demand? Are you increasing capacity? Every single one that they that he talks to seems to be having that problem, if you can call it a problem, I guess. But is uh, coming to that sort of decisions, how quickly you're expanding. So I've got no doubt that those players are all um, on the rise. Yeah, the, the downside is many of them will overexpand because it, the, their demand will plateau. So people, we we haven't seen a perfect business plan yet and, and what works out for people. It's still a little bit up in the air. It's sort of with any new industry, I guess. That's well, and that's the interesting thing. We're seeing you know, business plans from Sierra Nevada of you know, doing, doing what they do and pushing far and wide, but on their own bat. Um, private equity are chipping away at some places. Then you've got buyouts. So it's kind of, and I guess what um, Brooklyn have done with, you know, 24.5%? So uh, 24.99. Oh, is it 99 in the end? Okay. 24.99. So they wouldn't get to 25. So no one really knows what, like how it's going to look in 10 years, right? It's still trying to work out how to fund things and how to make it sustainable. Oh, uh, yeah. As a business, we don't know. As availability of interest, interesting beer, that that's already done. It's, it's going to be there. There's the demand for it. People are willing... Uh, to pay the price, you know, before we started uh, recording here, we, we talked about beer prices. Yours are higher. Your taxes totally suck. Uh, you know, and we're, and, and that's the advantage that happens over time. With, with the home brewers figuring out a conference, which is every other year, and what it takes in volunteers, uh, in the United States, the American Home Brewers Association is large enough, and it's actually part of the Brewers Association. So the Brewers Association events uh, staff is the one that organizes the homebrew conference. So when you get up to a certain size, you have those advantages. In the United States, now we have an effort to actually lower taxes, where smaller breweries will get more of a tax break, um, medium-sized breweries, which of course are now uh, multi-million dollar businesses, get some tax breaks, and the very large breweries like Boston Beer or ABI, for that matter, uh, get small tax advantages, although the dollars add up to more than the little guys because they make so much more beer. Would you say then that's one thing that Australians should do is basically sign up for the homebrew club and, and try and, you know, increase membership of homebrewers and sort of get an organization to, to change that? Is that... Uh, yeah, and, and you do have uh, the... A cra a cra yes. And so you, you've got a craft beers that, you know... the. The most important thing people can do is to be willing to support and, and pay the price for beer and say, it's important, you know, spend your money where it's important. If you don't, if you don't care for local, if you don't care about the idea of beer from a place, that's okay. You're actually in the majority. Um, but 
if you do care about it, then you have to be willing to pay for it to make it work. And that's one of the things that I, um, I'm really enjoying at the moment is I've got a, a brewery that's opened up near me or a couple that have opened up and you're seeing people sort of come in and, and discover, oh, there's a brewery here. I don't know much about beer, but it's interesting. I can see the tanks and the brewers serving me a beer and you know, they're, they're tiny setups, but they're making really good beer. And it kind of wins over people that way, that you know, local aspect. People, people love going to a brewery. Like, you know, if you're on holiday, even if you don't like beer, you, you go to a brewery. Uh, you create connections that way because people come in and you know the person making the beer. You get to know it. It's like knowing the local butcher or, you know, when, when it used to be you had local dairies, um, that, that, that you see the person who made the product and the person who made the product sees you. So you're making that beer and somebody said you're making a new beer, for instance, and you know um, when they come in and try that beer, you want them to like that beer. So it, it really is a virtuous uh, circle. Um, why did you get into beer? Like, what's, what's the appeal of, of beer for you? Well, if, if I go back to before we were home brewing, um, that we drank beer mostly at um, a couple places that um, drew upon German beer culture, and we were getting fresh imported German beer. It was an advantage of living in the Midwest part of the United States because there's a band that runs, they would come into Chicago but up to Minnesota was, was a strong area, so there were a couple beers that were always fresh, Koenig Pilsner and Dortmunder Alt, and you could go get those beers, drink them in half liters, and just enjoy the cultural part. So it was like being in a good pub, but we didn't have good pubs. Uh, and then that moved over as we, as we began to get more craft breweries around, and they created that atmosphere. So it's... it's the idea that there are places you can go have a conversation and in, enjoy something that, that tastes a little bit different. So that's sort of the appeal to beer. I finished reading Brew Like a Monk uh, a while ago. Um, I can't remember all the, the details, but I remember sort of a couple of things stuck out to me was sort of brewing like a monk means sort of brewing for the end result rather than the, the ingredients. Um, I, and it kind of something that echoed with me is that, that Belgian attitude is just kind of I don't know, let's say fair, or for lack of a better word, of as long as we get something delicious at the end. Is, and so I guess when it comes to brewing locally in your latest brook, is that something that you think's carried over and or needs to carry over? Well, I I I I think writing Brew Like a Monk began to. It was after writing Brew Like a Monk, and I knew there were other things I wanted to write about the importance of place and actually understanding where the beer came from, the people who made it, how much they cared about the ingredients. That's where I started my, my blog, Appalachian Beer, and, and putting Appalachian at the front. And so uh, brewing local is sort of a, um, a logical uh, continuation of that. But, it, but it's the same way, you know, and for the love of hops is understanding uh, where they're grown, where they come from, um, certainly how you, you take care of them. Uh, there's every chance that this uh, smack you in the face with hops, IPAs, will at least die down a little bit, um, and then we'll come back to appreciating uh, more of the nuance. Do you still enjoy a, a smack you in the face hoppy beer? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. So many people keep sort of saying, you know, oh, the hops arm brace is going to die and we're all going to 
but like I still really want to drink them. You know, I don't want to drink them every day, but a great hoppy beer is is still a great thing. I think uh, we both have the same sort of uh, outlook on those sort of things, as we don't want to be continually beaten over the head with huge flavor profiles. But when one comes along, that's a brilliant example of it. It's a real enjoyment. But in the United States, um, Ray Daniels, who wrote Designing Great Beers and and talked me into writing Brew Like a Monk and put me on a course that's now four books deep. Um, You know, what he's pointed out is we, we, we got rid of all adjunct lagers. Adjunct lagers are, are not, at their heart, bad to drink. If you dumb them down to eight IBU um, and eliminate all the malt flavor, then they're pretty boring. Uh, but historically in the United States, we had adjunct lagers that were 30 IBU and were pretty flavorful. But, but the idea was not to replace this one single beer, which was 90% of sales in the United States, with another lack of choice. So if people, the only choice, if you go into a bar, which you can do, and they have 20 beers on tap, and 15 of them are IPAs, that's not a lot of choice. Uh, that's kind of been talked about, that risk of a, a monoculture, um, of, you know, you, you come all the way to Australia and everyone's brewing IPAs with American hops. Um, but I think, I, I think I've seen you mention before as well the... We're still getting a lot of choice. Like a choice is still better right now. You know, we can still get, um, even though you can get 15 IPAs, there's a gozer and a lager and a, a thing. Um, how do you see that evolving? Do you do you think we're going to sort of keep on that track of mostly IPAs for a few years yet, or it's going to? Um, well, I, I don't know how fast it's going to change for you. In the United States, we're going to continue to get an awful lot of IPAs, uh, but maybe. Instead of 15 of the 20, it'll drop down to 12 of the 20. Uh, the Sierra, Na- Sierra Nevada, for instance, is putting in a sour cellar in their new Asheville brewery. Nobody expected Goza to take off like it has. So that was our, on our last show. We, we normally recommend something to our, our guests, and that was my recommendation was the um, their Goza. The Ultra Just because yeah, it, so you get good, it here yeah. in, in some of the big chain stores, and it's, it's so good. Um, and I wasn't sure if it's taken off or not, but it's selling well over in the States? It, it is their uh, number two selling beer. Wow. It was through this part of the year. I That's mean, it's, it's outselling tor- Torpedo IPA. So it's, you know, it's been, now that may change seasonally. We've, we've gone through the main part of that. And what they recognize by putting in a sour cellar, they're not necessarily going to stop with that one beer. But I think it also means, like, if it's gone through the warm months crushing it all over the country then a lot of people have have experienced it and then it sort of becomes part of their um, go-to beers and even if it's not seasonally great then it's still going to be a good option yeah if you still like that beer it's still going to be good in winter time regardless well, and, and, it, and then it changes the way you think about what you're ordering so you want that uh, alternative whether it's a you know, because it's not immensely sour, but maybe you move into beers that are more sour. Um, maybe you just start talking about, I want beers with more nuance. Um, in the United States, perhaps you haven't tried Sierra Nevada's Nooner, which is their Pilsner, and you've always thought, oh, Pilsners, they're boring and bad. But Sierra Nevada made this, maybe I should try this other one. So it, it's just a way to at least get people to start thinking in a slightly different way. We also discussed uh, Sierra Nevada on our last show in terms of their new um, 
fruit uh, infused the, the pail with some fruit and the torpedo with some fruit. Um, we, we weren't sure about that move. It seemed an interesting one for those guys to be almost reactionary to the market as mm. opposed to to head of the market. Where, where do you see that move? I, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure how it's going to work out right now, the, the flavor pale ale. And, and then uh, the extra torpedo is actually just to use more fruit forward hops. Oh, it's, okay. not so it's not to okay. add ah. fruit at, at the, that point, but to do that softer. Um, so not a New England IPA, but along those same same lines where you get a, a juicier sort of beer. And the, the New England IPA in terms of whether you, people love or hate the style, the, what it's actually done, that the whole biotransformation of oils and that technique is kind of surprised a lot of people. Well, we, we're not quite sure. It, it, part of the problem is people are claiming it's, it's doing this or it's doing that, and, and we have zero scientific proof that that is what is happening. Do you really need to leave your beer with that much yeast hanging there? Uh, maybe not. Uh, but, but it is important to understand the biotransformation. So at the World Brewing Congress was just held in Denver, Colorado in August, and four years ago at the World Brewing Commerce, there were maybe eight presentations and posters talking about uh, whether it's dry hopping or biotransformations or uh, understanding the thiols and hops. And this year there were more than 40. So you can see that we're, we're getting uh, actual science behind them, which I always think is uh, a good idea. And it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, we're, it almost seemed like they're at the point where everyone was sick of hops and then suddenly we're just finally learning about all these things yeah. happening. <laughs> well, the, the other thing, obviously, the public is not sick of hops. Um, so you, you've got to recognize that those of us who have gone down the rabbit hole, when you look back up, all those other people on the surface who haven't gone down the rabbit hill are now doing w what you were a year ago, and, and they think it's a pretty good idea. In, say, four or five years' time, where do you think the state of beer is going to be in the States? What's it going to look like, do you think? think Honestly, Southwest IPAs. <laughs> I don't know what the technique is yet, but that's going to be the region, though, I think. Well, the, the answer number one is, uh, honestly, I can't tell you where they'll be. There, there will be more Pilsners because we're getting more Pilsners. Uh, sour will not have run its course. And to the idea of Southwest IPAs, which would surprise you, so... Um, there, there is uh, a series, uh, I mean, a, a family, we, we have in the United States brews papers, which are free publications that are handed out at brew pubs. And uh, Brewing News is a chain that owns them across the country. And they sponsor uh, a national IPA contest that's a bracketed contest. You know, they start out with 64 beers, and they, they pair them in. And it's grown so much, they do 128 beers. And these are nice because what they do is they have people enter the beer, they send them someplace, and they are judged head-to-head. -head. It is not a popularity contest. So three years ago, um, La Cumbre Brewing in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with their elevated IPA, won the contest. And they, they've also won the IPA in 2011 at, at GABF. At the time, there were only about 240 IPAs entered in GABF. Now it's more like 350. Um, so they won the next year... Three of the final eight beers were from Albuquerque, and Elevated IPA was not among them. 
And more astonishing is this year, the same beer from Albuquerque that won the year before, which is like impossible to win back-to-back, won back-to-back in this contest. In this case, um, uh, this brewery, he's doing things like he'll dry hop with five pounds of hops per barrel. And to give it a, a pound of hops per barrel equates to about four grams per liter so that's uh, uh, four times. So, so that's about, it's actually about 75 grams for a 19-liter batch, to give you an idea. And so he's using that. And what he's doing is when he finishes one batch and he drains from his fermentation tank, he's brewing another one right on top of it. So he's using a little bit more of his hops that way. And, and it's a little lower gravity beer and thing. Those are the sorts of things people are experimenting it's with like right now. It's like a Solera now. system almost. <laughs> um, if there's one bit of advice you would, you'd want to give Australian brewers, because uh, they what all listen be? to this show. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, it, it would be um, the idea how to work with your yeast. Um, and uh, that is, uh, the yeast is in charge of making your beer. You're in charge of creating the environment. So you want to give it good work, and then you need to be able to control the temperature that it's operating at. But, but you have to understand your yeast, uh, and if it, generally we find that pitching low and letting it ramp up on its own works well, but you've got to learn the temperature it wants to start at and the temperature it wants to work at, and that takes some experimentation. So brewers don't make beer, brewers brew wort, and yeast makes beer. (laughs) So keep your yeast happy. Fair enough. Um, Dave, do you have any more questions? I don't. Cool. Uh, We're conscious uh, of time. Sure. Um, Where, if people want to hear or read more of your wisdom, can they find you on the internet? Um, You can go to AppalachianBeer.com, which is A-P-P-E-L-L-A-T-I-O-N-Beer.com. How many times have you explained that to people in the the, the years? My name is Hieronymus, H-I-E-R-O-N-Y-M-U-S. My (laughs) wife's name is Labinsky, L-A-B-I-N-A-I-N-A-I-N-A-I-N-A-I-N-A-I-N-A-I-N-A-I-N-A-I-N-A-I-N-A-I-N-A-I-N-A-I-N-A-I-N-A-I-N-A-I-N-